If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Today we begin our new uh, study. Ephesians chapter 1, just two verses there. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life and we need it. Lord, today may we hear these words, grace and peace from you, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May those things shape us powerfully. May they not be static realities, but Lord, may we be transformed by them. Help us, we pray by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we have people from all walks of life Greek culture, Asian culture, Jewish and North African, power brokers in Roman society. In this Roman-controlled region of Asia, we have average Joe, word on the street kind of people. And again, we have leaders in every sphere of society. A large city, maybe one of the five largest in this time. You can read different things about it, 125,000 to upwards to 200,000 people. A bustling civic center, a massive temple devoted to the worship of Artemis, a false god, a city which was vital for plunder by Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and later, uh, a Roman stronghold under Augustus Caesar. The restoration of the Temple Artemis really kind of put Ephesus on the map. It was widely known, as we saw last week in Acts, as a religious center for pagan idolatry. It was the administrative center for Rome and Asia, so in addition to being kind of a capital city for pagan worship, it was a capital for Rome. A vast stadium, a huge amphitheater, a whole city and region dedicated to rampant sexualized idolatry. To that we add what it must have been like to be a Christian in that setting. What must it be like to raise kids in that? 
relationships between husband and wife? What does Christian friendship look like in that setting? How are they to relate to the government? How are they to relate to the church body? How are they to treat others, both believers and non-believers around them? None of this is too distant from our own reality. Our cities, our neighborhoods are not without problems. The world outside poses many challenges to us. Many challenges. Our city has many great things. Many things for uh, it to be noted by these good things. Alongside those good things, there are many hard things. Broken institutions. Relational challenges. Poverty. Racial division and tension. Add this add to these dynamics of our city, our community, our own personal brokenness. Not what is outside of us, but what is in us. Our own sin. Our own prejudice. Relational challenges here within the body. Relational challenges with work. Struggles students have in schools. Financial difficulties. Many of us know what it means to be in a situation where we lack resources. What would make a difference to you, a real difference to you, and how you approach life in this place and time? Would it make a difference for you if you knew that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is working in you now? Would that shape you at all? Would it make a difference in your life that as a believer in Christ, you are united to Christ and utterly blessed in Him, and in fact, in Christ, you lack no blessing? Would that make a difference in what you do on Monday morning? Would it make a difference in your life if you knew that you were a wretched sinner, utterly deserving death? Yeah, it's great. I expect to hear that from the preacher. No, if you really knew, if you really knew the depth of your sin, and that you utterly deserved death before a holy God, but He had done something in Christ to rescue from that. Would that shape your life at all? Would it make a difference in your life if you knew for certain that you were a recipient of vast, limitless treasure and stores of God's grace? Would that shape you? How would that grace then have an impact on the way you approach everything in life? The way that you think about yourself, the way that you relate to other people, your approach to the local body, the local church, how you get along with others at work and out in society, how you relate to your neighbors, whether they're believers in Christ or not, how you relate 
to your husband, how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your children, children, how you relate to your parents, how you relate to your friends, does grace have meaning? The grace of God expressed in the person of Christ and sealed there by the Spirit in the heart of the believer, that is at the heart of this letter. Over all the the cultural baggage, over all the relational stuff, is the banner, grace. Can we say too much about the great grace of God? Can we ever exhaust its treasures? How much do you need grace? How much has your life been transformed by the grace of God in Christ now? What is the meaning of the gospel in life? Not just that point in time where your eyes are opened by the Spirit of God and you receive it, but what does it mean for that grace to then be worked out across the plane of a life? Ephesians is a book about all of these realities. A simple breakdown of the book. I love it because it's pretty straightforward. I need straightforward things if I'm going to understand them. Chapters 1 through 3, here is who God is and what He's done for you in the personal work of Jesus. Here are the realities of God at work now. This is what the Gospel is and this is what it means. Then he rounds a corner in chapters 4 through 6. He says, and that's not a static reality. All this stuff that I'm telling you right here about who the person and work of Jesus is, about the blessings that we have in Him, all of that has meaning in every area of your life. It means something. So how do you open a letter like that? Openings to us are just like, we just put the person that it's to, right? person or institution. That's not the way these guys wrote. They wanted to tie up in the intro. It wasn't just, uh, you know, dear church, boom, get going. In their opening, they wanted to say something about where they were going. And that's why we're going slow here, only two verses. We won't always do that. Uh, but we're going slow because I want, to, I want us to see these themes that Paul is developing for the local church. One, the authority of the writer. Two, the character of the reader. And three, the tremendous blessing of God. First, the authority of the writer, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There are several things we need to know about Paul. First, he was a zealous man. His whole life had been dedicated to being correct, being right. Correctness mattered a great deal to him. He was devout and a very religious young man. He, he was a student under, of the law, as stringent as you could get. This teacher was a noted teacher, Gamaliel, noted for his study of the law of God. So he had, he had a prestigious... Uh, teacher. He had all the right connections. He had an incredible resume. In short, Paul had it going on. 
He even, he was so zealous, he he even helped stamp out this young religious group. This this new group had this thing going on where they, they were adopting the name Jesus. They were willing to give their lives for Jesus. Paul so hated that, he he so tried to stamp it out, he was there when one of the early martyrs, Stephen, was stoned to death. As the people were going to do the work of stoning, they laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul. But that wasn't the end for him. While rampaging from place to place to stamp out those of the way, Paul himself was struck down by Christ. Let me just read this to you. A little background on Paul. Listen to Acts 9. It was called Saul then. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I'm not going to give a full biography here of Paul. I would love to talk to you more about him. I want us to see something here just in his conversion. Paul, the apostle, even the one writing this letter in a Roman prison, was utterly transformed by the grace of God. His life was utterly upended by grace. He went from someone who utterly hated Christ and hated the church to someone who was willing to lay his life down for it, for the gospel, for the church. It's an astounding reality. God is still doing that today. He's still taking lives that are going one direction and turning them around to take them in a totally different direction. And I love this about Paul's conversion. Did you hear what Jesus asked him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he says, who? Who are you? He says, Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Wait, where is Jesus at this point in Acts? Where is Jesus? He's ascended into heaven, is he not? I want you to see how closely Jesus is relating himself to his people, the church. Paul is persecuting the church. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Do you see that? Do you see the beauty and glory of the church in that? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is lining himself up, his identity up with us as the people of God. He's seeing zero distinction between who we are as his people and who he is as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's beautiful. 
I can't help but believe that this is so foundational in the, in the life of Paul. That he viewed the glory of Christ in the church. Paul's theology of the church is a rich reminder to us of who we are as the people of God. Sometimes the church looks very weak. Sometimes the church is very weak. Sometimes we look a lot like the rest of the world. But what are we reminded of here? It's this, that Jesus views the church as he views himself. It's a place of glory. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle simply means sent one. Paul is telling us that he is an appointed messenger of God. He has this commission by Jesus himself to go take this message of Jesus and grace to a world that needs to hear it. Being an apostle also means that the message that Paul brings is not his. It's a message of Christ. Paul is a representative of Jesus Christ. He is possessed by Christ. He is an ambassador for Christ. His message is about Christ. He is sent and he writes for the purposes of Jesus Christ. He's not writing to ring his own bell. He's not writing for his own notoriety. Many of his epistles are written from jail. He's writing to make much of Jesus. What does it mean that he's an apostle writing this letter? What did it mean for the church at Ephesus? It meant this. Hey, listen up. Pay attention. This isn't just another note. This is an apostolic letter to you. Listen. Pay attention. What does it mean for us, Grace Presbyterian Church? It means pay attention. Listen up. This is not just another article that someone is sending you, written by someone out there, you know, in your inbox. You may get around to it, you may not. It's not like that. This apostolic word is the very word of God. We wonder sometimes, I think, about the apostles. They're not around anymore. Here's the deal. You and I are benefiting from the work of the apostles. Later in Ephesians we'll read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. Listen, the faith that we have today, this morning, is ours through the apostolic witness. We are to pay attention. Paul, an apostle that has meaning in a world filled with all kinds of issues. Where we turn to get answers. Listen, do we read the scriptures as though they're sent to us by a loving Father? Does it hold answers for our lives? What we need what the world needs is this. 
the word of God. Paul goes on to say that his his apostleship, his belonging to Christ, is by the will of God. An apostle by the will of God. The confidence that Paul has, even in chains, is that God has him there. He views his life as utterly controlled and constrained by God. He's moved around by God. He's writing to the Ephesians by the will of God. The will of God, all of this is the source of assurance that Paul has, even when he's depressed. Do you know that Paul struggled? I think sometimes we, we, we throw some shade on Paul like, and he's just a saint, and he walked around with a glowing halo, and everything was fine. When the reality is, sometimes we read that he despaired even of life itself. He loved fiercely and deeply. He spent over two years making disciples in Ephesus. We tend to dehumanize him and, and set his, him and his faith over here and we forget that he struggled mightily. And the only way that he could view his life rightly is life lived before God. An apostle by the will of God. What would that do to shape your life? To give you identity and hope? What is it about your life that belongs there that you would put in that blank, blank by the will of God? I'm doing this work because of the will of God. I'm in this relationship by the will of God. This great thing is happening to me by the will of God. This terrible thing is happening to me by the will of God. It's a great assurance and a great hope that Paul has that I'm here by the will of God. I am what I am, not by my own will. Not because I signed up for it and it was going to be so great. I am what I am because of the will of God. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. So we have this authoritative missive. And verse 1 tells us something staggering about the the character of the readers. Look at it again. Look at verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul looks at the church in this region he calls them saints. He's celebrating them. He's celebrating them. He's saying something incredible. He's celebrating who they are in Christ. He's making a big deal from the very first line of their identity as the people of God. Saints means holy ones. Sanctified ones. Consecrated ones. It's a high designation. It's from the same root word where we get the word holy. Holy ones. To the saints at Ephesus. To the holy ones at Ephesus. 
as a term describing people, it's not used very much. In the Old Testament, it was very rarely used, and it was reserved for for various Old Testament figures. John the Baptist, one commentator notes, by using the same designation, the author of Ephesians bestows upon all his pagan-born hearers a privilege formerly reserved for Israel, for special, even priestly servants of God, or for angels. And he's writing to a bunch of former pagans who worshipped Artemis and gave their life to idolatry, and he's looking at them and saying, saints, holy ones. Do we, Grace Presbyterian Church, realize that belonging to Christ means that we're saints. Holy ones. It seems impossible. How could we be called holy ones? You know yourself. And you know what I mean by that question. How can Paul say to a church in a culture rampant with sexualized ideology, idolatry on every corner, saints, holy ones. He goes on to say that these saints are the faithful in Christ Jesus, believers in Christ Jesus, people of faith in Christ Jesus. That's where they get their sainthood. They're saints not because they qualify. Yep, I qualify for sainthood. I'm a really good guy. And I've done such good things that I qualify for an apostle to call me a saint. That is not the case. That is not the case of anyone in Ephesus. And I can promise you it is not the case of anyone at Grace Presbyterian Church. Our sainthood, our being called holy ones by God is rooted in this faith in Christ Jesus. Our holiness comes from the holiness of Jesus. His holiness qualifies us to be called holy ones. Do you see the astounding nature of what he's saying about the character of these people? He's saying right now, even as I write to you in prison, you are saints. What would it look like for us if we were to really believe that about our own life? How would that shape us? How would that shape our lives if we suddenly believed, we really believed that we were holy ones by faith in Christ? What tremendous grace there is in that. Listen, if you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a holy one. You are a consecrated one. You're set apart to God. That's your identity. Here's the heart of the gospel is right here. Even though we don't deserve it. Even though we deserve the exact opposite. We deserve malediction. We deserve a bad word. It's exactly what our sin deserves. 
We deserve to be isolated and alone and condemned. And Christ comes along. Our King, our Lord, our Savior. He lives in our place, erasing our record, giving us a new one that's perfect. Then He takes on the curse. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus was hanged on a tree, receiving curse that He did not deserve, that we deserve. Then, then after death, He triumphed over death, conquering it in glorious resurrection for us, promising new life. So that we, in Him, those of us who have faith in Him, those who have believed in Him, might be called holy ones. It sounds absurd, but it's true to the saints at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Do you know that this is your status in Christ? That you're called holy ones, set apart ones, consecrated ones? Do you know that as a believer, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Do you know that because of this designation, you are obligated to pursue a holy life? Listen, this is fuel for holiness. You're given this designation in Christ, and now we're to live it out. What does it mean to live as a saint? Paul's going to tell us. What is faith doing in you? What is the grace of God doing in you? Identity is very important to the church in Ephesus. And I say it's very important to Grace Presbyterian in Shreveport. To those here who might not be believers, know that there is a call here for you. You too can be called graciously you can be called a saint. Finding your life in Christ qualifies you. Faith in Christ, who He is and what He has done. Saints. To the saints at Grace Presbyterian Church. Try that on for size. How does it fit? Lastly, so we have the, the authority of this writer and this incredible character that we're already seeing in, in the reader. And next we have this beautiful blessing, the blessing of God. Paul celebrates the reality of sainthood, the meaning of blessing the people by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's setting the tone for the rest of the letter. Grace and peace. First, grace. What a powerful word to begin with. You know what grace is? It's this. It's, it's the reality that we don't deserve anything good. We don't deserve it. In fact, we've done everything possible to earn the opposite of anything good. 
And it's in our being completely undeserving of anything good that we're given God's incredible favor. We're given every good thing. That's sheer grace. It's utterly undeserved. And yet poured out on us by God. Grace is lavish. It's extravagant. It's incredibly costly. It's not cheap. It costs the life of the very Son of God. So that God might lavish on us an identity that we utterly do not deserve. That He might, with Christ, make us inherit all things. We don't deserve any of that. Yet grace says you get it. Here, it's yours. There's nothing in us that deserves any of this. Utterly unearned. And yet in Christ, this grace is reserved for us. Grace is announced over the people and place. Grace to the church. Not just individually. To the saints in Ephesus, grace and peace to you, to all of you. Think of Paul's story for a minute. The story that we just briefly talked about. Even as he writes this word. Even as he opens this epistle up. The word grace looms large in his mind and life. Because he had received so much of it. He had gone from a murderer hunting people of the way to to someone who would write this. Grace is the stamp over all of this letter. God's incredible, remarkable, unending, relentless grace. He's got to be thinking... I'm a recipient of this great grace. I utterly deserve to be undone. If God would have struck me dead right then on the road to Damascus, He would have been right to do so. Yet He changed me. He forgave me utterly and blessed me. Called me as an apostle by His will. Grace loomed large in his life and it had tremendous meaning for Paul. Does it loom large for us as a church? What does it mean that we're the people of God under grace? What does it mean that the first name of our church, Grace Presbyterian, does that have any meaning? When people look at us, they say, man, that, they are aptly named. Those people in that church, they need some grace. They should. We should be known as those people who are alive and vibrant in our faith because of the grace of God. What does it mean that God has been gracious to us in the person of Christ? One way to assess your life and your understanding of grace is how is your life different? How has Christ changed you? 
If you want to know that you've apprehended grace, do you ever show grace to anybody else? Utterly undeserved merit to anyone else. Do you treat people differently because of the grace of God? Again, think about Paul from killing the church to loving it. Has the grace of God begun to do that in you? Changing those people from those that you hate deep inside your heart to those that you utterly love. Not because they deserve it, but because you've been shown grace. Next, he says, peace. What does grace mean for us? Is it, does it remain in the abstract? No, he says, peace. Peace in the Hebrew mind. And even in the grammar, comes from the word shalom. And it means, yes, it does mean that hostilities have ceased. The war that was waged against us is over in Christ. But it also means that all things are right. They're the way they're supposed to be. Peace has huge meaning. Grace, undeserved favor on us. And peace, things are the way that they're supposed to be in Christ. Grace and peace. Shalom. Rightness. Wholeness. Fullness. The peace of God is not a warm fuzzy. In the most profound ways, this peace is upending everything. Because God does deserve to pour out His wrath upon us. He is right to do so. And instead of that, we hear the word peace. Things are right between us and God. It's incredible. Notice that we're told the source of all these blessings. They aren't abstractly given. Grace and peace aren't uprooted from who God is. Grace and peace are deeply rooted in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Not some abstract blessing floating around in space. Not just words that can be used. Grace and peace in God our Father and in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the source of this particular blessing. Grace and peace will be found nowhere else. The Father, think about that. Grace and peace, God is our Father. We are His children. From the very outset, He's saying this deep-rooted identity of grace means that you're a child of God. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. This grace and peace are divine blessings given to us from outside of ourselves, not through anything that we deserve. They're spoken over us and given to us from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the main themes in Ephesians is that these realities, grace and peace, come from God. 
and their shaping influences on every area of life. They are at work in our lives and in the world today. They are not far off in distant realities. They are not just cold truths that are written in theological textbooks. They are working actively here today in our midst. The question over and over and over again in Ephesians is going to be, what do these things mean in your life? Are they just cold and distant realities that exist over there in theological realms? Or do these things have meaning for us? Grace and peace. The true shalom of God. Being made right isn't just a future reality. Being a saint isn't something that we just wait for. These realities, because of Jesus Christ, have broken into the present. This is us. This is our identity now, and it will be for all eternity. Listen, as Paul is opening with these themes, would we consider the greatness of God's grace and peace in our lives? Would we consider today the realities of what, he, what he's saying here? We're called saints, holy ones. How would that change our life if we really believed it? Do we hear the blessing of God spoken over and to us, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this benediction, for this good Word. Lord, we desperately need it. Lord, we thank You for the apostolic writing. We thank You for the transformed life of a sinner like Saul, that You utterly upended his life to give us this letter. Lord, as we read it, may we be shaped by the grace and peace that he's going to present. Lord, we beg that these would not be cold and static and distant realities in our hearts, but let us know deeply what it means that we are transformed by your grace. That you speak over us, saints, holy ones, set-apart ones. Lord, shape us around that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.